Welcome to the Missing Chapter Podcast, where you will hear some of the least known, obscure, and entertaining stories the history textbooks left out. Starring Phil Horander and Phil Schaff. On this episode of The Missing Chapter, we're switching gears. Yes, you still have some forgotten stories, some history that the textbooks left out, but today we're going to play a game. This person in focus on today's episode will remain anonymous until the end. Take in the clues, conjure up some ideas, and piece together today's puzzle to figure out who this person is that I'll be referring to today. The first clue is the fact that this person had a very significant bloodline to some of our nation's most highly respected figures. And the second clue, well, is this person's consistent willingness to lead when others have fallen. Listen in for more clues and enjoy unpacking this story with us on this episode of The Missing Chapter. Over the last two seasons, we've enjoyed bringing unknown stories from history to you every weekend. Now it's your turn to bring a story to us. Every town in every corner of the world has a story, and its history is our history. Tell us the story about your hometown and what makes it special or unique. We're calling it Hometown History. Who or what is your town known for? Tell us your hometown story either in an email or a voice message from our Facebook page. Phil and I will choose one hometown's history to research and profile in a full episode of Season 3 of The Missing Chapter. And we'll contact you to be a part of it. Every hometown has a story. The next chapter we add to the history textbooks could be yours. Hi, everyone. It's Phil Horander here with Phil Schaff. Welcome to another chapter of The Missing Chapter. It is a cold, damp, rainy day in upstate New York, Phil. It is. And we have a hot pot of coffee. We're ready to listen to your podcast. It's the perfect day for a podcast, the perfect setting for a podcast. Um, I do want to mention that the coffee that we're having today is uh, courtesy, again, of our Utica friends at the Utica Coffee Roasting Company. Um, But it's in support of MS. They put out a great uh, brew and all the money and proceeds, or at least a portion, I should say, uh, goes to MS and those afflicted with that um, with that disease. Yeah, and that kind of hits home for for me personally and our our Shaw family because uh, you know our uncle Ted has been has been suffering with that for almost a, actually a little over twenty years. So um, anytime we get a chance to support MS foundations, we'd love to. Yeah, and it's a good coffee too. We've partnered it up with um, with a caramel macchiato creamer, and it's really good. Yeah, it's fantastic. And like I said, it's a perfect day to have a hot cup of coffee and hear about a good story. And Phil, you've intentionally, really, I mean, we say this all the time. Um, you have not told me a lot about your story, but this right. one intentionally, you haven't even told me the the main character of the story. Right. And I and, think, and I think you're going to do that for the audience members at home. Too. Yeah. And it's, this is more of like a little bit of a, of a mystery game here. So we're, I'm going to kind of give you a little, little bit of hints, a little bit of uh, breadcrumbs as we go along. And then I'll give you the full kid caboodle probably after the break. Here. Sounds good. All right. So let's start with what I mentioned in the intro, the bloodline of this person. Okay. This person is born in 1872 seventh in the line of 11 children total. Uh, This person's ancestry is traced back to colonial Virginia, direct descendant of um, Pocahontas Hmm. on the father's side of the family. Okay. 
related by blood or through marriage to Thomas Jefferson, Martha Washington, Letitia Tyler, which of course is our uh, first lady from uh, 1841 to 42, first wife of President John Tyler. This person admitted that even though the bloodline is, I mean, pretty much American royalty, mm -hmm. they had no prior knowledge of or really any interest in politics at all. Okay. I think just by saying that, though, this person definitely will get involved in politics. And oh, I, I think okay. you'll, you'll, you'll see why. This person soon became deeply involved in more than just politics, but presidential affairs. Another clue. And once again, another clue, not necessarily by choice. Uh, even with this person's interesting and bloodline, they didn't really grow up in luxury. Kind of had a rough upbringing, but their uh, paternal grandfather had lost their plantation after the Civil War. Very large family lived in a, a cramped apartment above a, a storefront in Virginia. Very sheltered. Uh, this person never even left town until the age of 12. So kind of humble upbringings, um, even though they have a pretty royal bloodline. Okay. Uh, tried to make their life a little bit better. So this person's father paid for them to go to Martha Washington College to study music. But it was a miserable experience. Uh, food was pretty poorly prepared. The rooms were cold. Uh, the daily curriculum was like excessively rigorous. It was something where the, it was just completely beyond comprehension for this person. Very intimidating and very, very strictly regimented, almost military. Uh, so this person left only after one semester. Two years later, the father enrolled this person in Powell's school in Richmond, Virginia, and it was the happiest time of this person's life. Unfortunately, the school ended up closing at the end of the year after the headmaster suffered an awful accident that cost this, this headmaster, cost him his life. Uh, so concerned about the cost of the education, this person's father refused to pay for any additional schooling, choosing to instead to focus on educating uh, some of his other children. Okay. I, I see your, your, your gears are grinding here. I can My see gears your... are grinding because I have no idea who you're talking about. <laughs> okay. I, like you've given us some clues here and I'm thinking I should at least have like a mental list of people I'm checking off and I don't. Good. That's so, great. So keep going. I'm doing my job. Uh, you're doing your job. All right. So this might at least help narrow down your okay. thought process. Okay. okay. She All right. was visiting her sister in DC when she met a young man by the name of Norman Galt. Doesn't ring a bell. <laughs> Didn't ring a bell when I saw the story either. I'm like, that's supposed to help me? It doesn't, Phil. <laughs> okay. So they fell in love, got married in 1896. So 24 years old. And for 12 years, she helped run the family business, okay. which was, by the way, a very lucrative silver and jewelry store. So her husband, Norman, the owner of the store, unfortunately died unexpectedly in 1908. That's when she took over the store and became owner. And she did a fantastic job uh, with a day-to-day -day operation. She did so well for herself. Ready? She earned enough income to make regular trips to Europe. She had enough money to buy a fancy new electric car. That's right. They said did electric cars back then. And that electric car was a whopping $1,750. Most gas power cars at the time were around 500 to 650 bucks. So she hired a manager to offset responsibilities and expand the business. Now, let this be an example of the story and a major clue into her, her future here. How well she handled the death of her loved one and bounced back to lead. That's going to be the, the kind of overall theme. Okay. Okay. So a few years later, think about time period here. World War I breaks out. So after, you know, overcoming a lot of adversity, she's, she's starting to come up. 
Here's World War One, and that, of course, changes the scope of American history. She wants to get involved. She feels the urge to, so she volunteers with the Red Cross. She encouraged rationing efforts through, throughout the United States, specifically for women to get involved with those efforts. Um, now, you could probably understand why. She's very, she's a go-getter. Okay. She's, done, okay. she's done very well for herself in that lucrative business. She's taken over. She's responded from uh, you know, a, a huge setback of the loss of her husband. So she's really trying to get women, encouraging women to come up. Okay. Now, the closer she's getting to U.S. politics, though, the closer politics seems to get to her. Mm. Okay. In March of 1915, a friend of hers by the name of Helen had joined, ready? Here's her first name. Another clue. Edith. All right. Okay. See the gears grinding again. Okay. On a relaxing but muddy hike. So they, you know, go on this hike. They're talking. They're chatting. They're kind of venting to each other. They're just, you know, being what, you know, typical friends right, right. be for each other. And, a, you know, a shoulder to cry on sometimes. And they're just kind of talking about life. And one of the conversations they had was, was maybe finding another person that she could spend the rest of her life with. Okay. Now, here's another clue. Um, this woman, Helen, coaxed Edith to come to the White House for some warm tea. Mm. All right, they're money. They had this great conversation. They had this great hike. Come back to the White House because here's another clue. Helen's full name was Helen Woodrow Bones, and she was President Woodrow Wilson's first cousin. Okay. And served as the official White House hostess after the death of Wilson's wife, Ellen Wilson. Okay. As Edith put it, she was coerced. She goes to the White House and she, quote, turned a corner and met my fate, which was another widowed man. That widowed man, none other than U.S. President Woodrow Wilson. Okay. okay. So here we are. Helen is now introducing her friend, Edith, Edith, to President Woodrow Wilson, which is Helen's cousin. Okay. You follow me? I am. Okay. And I'm starting to... I, okay. You starting Keep to, going. Okay. I, I, All right. I the think, pieces yeah. are coming together. Here uh -huh. I see the, it. Coffee's I see the, light bulb. the coffee's kicking in. Yeah, sure. Sure. <laughs> so before we go on, any any ideas you want to throw out at me or? Well, I know Wilson's wife, her first name was Edith. I mean, mm -hmm. it's so the, the irony here, I don't think would extend far beyond that. You're good. So you're good. Okay. So let's let's take it off. Uh, let's take off another layer here. Okay. So they hit it off. Woodrow Wilson invited her to dinner a few weeks later, and soon began discussing matters of state with her. Wow. So even though it's only a few weeks in, and Edith does not really care for politics at all, once again politics has come to her. And Phil, you don't you don't bring work into a first date, right? <laughs> you, you don't Lesson you don't one. talk work on a first date. I'll so, toss that out there too. So if you don't bring work in her, tell me, tell me this. Yeah. Why would Woodrow Wilson actually in the first few weeks of, of talking to her, ask her whether or not to declare war on Germany after the attack in the Lusitania? That was one of the first conversations they had. And, and he was taking her advice on whether or not to attack Germany. That's amazing. Is that incredible? That's amazing. So you got it. He ended up proposing to Edith, full name of Edith Bowling Galt Wilson, only three months after that initial interaction at the White House. Three months. Three months. With everything going on in the world, too. Yes. He, he obviously, I mean, you want to talk about love at first sight and a good first impression because you, you're discussing some pretty serious things Absolutely. with this woman. And then within three months, you're also saying, hey, listen, I love you. 
we have great conversation. Let's make this official. Absolutely. That's amazing. It's incredible. Yeah. yeah. Obviously pretty smitten. He ends up typing up a press release in October announcing their engagement, which was, of course, followed by their wedding only a few months later in December 18th, 1915. Uh, and once again, which is only a year after the death of Wilson's first wife, Ellen, in 1914. Hmm. So, you know, because of that, aides were pretty worried that uh, Wilson's speedy return to the altar, I guess you could say, would rub the public the wrong way. But it actually proved to be a pretty insignificant obstacle hmm. uh, in his bid to seek a, a second term in 1916. So, so here we are. The mystery lady is none other than Edith Wilson, an American first lady, all right, from 1915 to 21. The second wife of Woodrow Wilson, of course, our 28th president of the United States. And I think after the break, though, we'll talk more about this incredibly powerful woman and how she used her initial setback with her first husband's death to not only help Woodrow Wilson and his presidential responsibilities, but actually become the forgotten first. You know, Phil, I, I love this story. And I feel like, you know, as a historian, I feel like, first off, first ladies kind of get overlooked. I mean, we have a specific group of first ladies that I think we know a little bit more about than others. A Mary Todd Lincoln, a Jackie Kennedy, and Eleanor Roosevelt. But I feel as, as a whole, as a group, they don't really get their, their just time. And I also feel like, you know, here you have someone um, who is an advisor to her husband. And yeah. I mean, it's also a nice story. He was widowed, you know, the, the love at first sight, three months after meeting, you know, they're, they're engaged. I feel like there's a good story there, but she also served a really important role, you know, with her husband in a crucial time period in American history, world history. Oh, yeah. And, and so that's a great segue, too, because not only is this a devotion to her husband, mm -hmm. it's eventually going to be a devotion to her country. And this is where there's a little controversy here, because after, you know, after he has this really debilitating stroke um, in 1919, there's, you know, which is, of course, another added to the list of another unfortunate life altering event for her and her husband. Um, there's a very difficult situation for her and her marriage, obviously. Uh, but also left with a very complicated and very controversial legacy as first lady. And this is what we'll get into as, the, as we close. Um, you know, obviously with this kind of stroke, you still need to, you still have the continuity of government. You still have to continue. Life doesn't stop because even, mm -hmm. even if the president has uh, fallen ill. So she really felt, remember, she was never really into politics, but I think this, this is something where politics comes to her yet again. And with this kind of situation, she has trained, she has been trained throughout her entire life. When things go wrong, she has really stepped up. Mm -hmm. When her first husband passed, she she stepped up and took over as, as owner of the business and, and became an incredibly successful uh, businesswoman and, and venture. Of course, she she meets Woodrow Wilson and now is the first lady. So, so I, I think this second half of the story is where maybe some, I don't know, embellishment has taken place in some of her critics. Mm -hmm. Uh, to the point where where they would consider her the first female president. That's great, and and you know what I I do I think what you just said is extremely important is that this, this was not someone who was just looking for a husband and became the first lady. She was a businesswoman. She had this incredible background. She yeah. was a she was a an established individual before she became first lady. True. I mean that was like the second part of her of her life and her career. I mean, she was someone who really was her own individual 
before she was a president's wife. Right, right. So, you know, it's credit to, to Woodrow Wilson, too. He obviously saw what she was in, in a woman in that time period. And I'm assuming I mean, this is someone who who had a, a vast array of of talents. Yeah. And I'm assuming he he didn't know her bloodline and, right. and being related to so many, you know, famous American you mm-hmm. know, historic people. But I think really what what the credit needs to go to is the fact that she maybe it was because she knew her her family lineage or whatever it is. She went from not leaving her town until she was 12 to being essentially the person who's running the country. Yeah. Um, after this stroke. And I think this is where the controversy takes place. So they have obviously, all presidents have have very loyal physicians. And, and this physician in particular was very, very loyal to, to Woodrow. Um, so she kind of allies with his, his loyal physician. So they kind of come to an agreement. We have to shield the president from all outside visitors. Okay. Uh, she kind of makes her herself basically a self-appointed steward uh, for her husband following his stroke. Now, prior to, you know, the conservatorship controversy of Britney Spears, I might not think too much of this, but now that we know some of those things, the legalities of that, I, I start to dive into this and say, is she really running the country? Or is she just kind of being the filter for, for you know, as a, as a great wife and right. as a great first lady, to try to continue government and to make sure that these decisions are being made properly. So I, I guess there's the question whether or not this stewardship um, has gone a little bit too far. Mm-hmm. So I, that's that's the controversy regarding it. So she served essentially under the stewardship as the only way to the president. And her goal was not really to mislead the entire nation or the cabinet, Congress, the, the press and the people, but really to just continue the functions of the executive branch. So what she would do is vet which would be carefully crafted medical bulletins. They were very delicate of how they wanted to announce some of these things, these publicly released um, medical bulletins. She would only really permit any sort of acknowledgement that Wilson really needed rest and would be working from his bedroom suite instead. Um, So it was very, very carefully crafted. When individual cabinet members came to talk to him, uh, they went no further than her because I think they they started to catch on Mm -hmm. that she was the boss And if you need to talk to him, you got to go through me to get to him. Okay. So if they had policy papers, uh, pending decisions, uh, things for him to review, edit, approve, all that, she would be the first one to look over the material herself. And then if she deemed the matter, I guess, pressing enough, she took the paperwork into her husband's room where she claimed she would read all the necessary documents to him. She functionally was running the executive branch for her husband for the remainder of his last term in office, uh, which equated to about a year and a half, almost two years. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that's a long time. That was actually my, my next question. How long was she able to to do this? That's a good portion. We're not talking months. Right. I mean, you're, you're talking half of a, of a presidential term. And again, you have to put this in the context of where we are in history, too. I mean, yeah. a, a crucial time in world history. Right. And you got to think after World War One, you're, you're getting into a lot of historic pieces uh, of American history from mm-hmm. the roaring twenties to of course, you know, the great depression. So you, you have, yeah, you, she's in a crucial point. You're absolutely right. Um, White house usher, this guy by the name of Ike Hoover, he, he recalls some of the, the, the matters going on in the white house. And he said, if there were some papers requiring his attention, they would be read to him, but only those that Mrs. Wilson thought should be read to him. Likewise, word of any decision the president had made, 
would be passed back through the same channels. Hmm. Um, so once again, you can interpret that how you how you wish, but I think there is there is merit to some of the critics who said that maybe she took it a little too far in her stewardship. But then, of course, there is merit to those that say, I think she's just doing her job as first lady and wife. Here's my question, Phil, and I'm not sure if you came across this in, in your research. Are we able to determine what condition Wilson was actually in after his stroke? I mean, does is this reflective of really, was he a, less coherent than maybe people knew? I, I it, We should ask our, our resident, um, you know, presidential historian, Mr. Blake Smith, about yeah. that, you know, and, and some of our, our very, very uh, ingenious historians around the area about that. Because yeah. I, in my view, I think just from from her perspective, mm-hmm. not so much what, what history says, but from her perspective, I think he was way worse off than, than people mm-hmm. let on. Yeah. Um, now the, the degree of that, I don't, I don't really know, but, uh, that's where we could, we could maybe pull in some other people's opinions on that. She, uh, carefully controlled all of her husband's days. Many claim that she was once again, the first female president of the United States, um, and I think some of the charges, though, that she took over the duties of the presidency, I think that were, was exaggerated just from what I'm seeing. But, you know, she's known for she's known for screening his mail, the official papers. In some cases, she was um, accused of signing Wilson's signature without consulting him. But she insisted at, at certain points that this was not the case and blamed the accusations on her husband's, of course, political opponents at the time. So. I think towards the later, the latter part of his presidency, a very frail, frail Wilson kind of muddled through his last year. Um, and his favorite activity at this point was watching newsreels from his time in office. Uh, but at the conclusion of his term in office, he and Edith retired to a Washington, D.C. townhouse. And uh, Wilson lived out his days there. He ended up dying three years later. But Edith, uh, because she's the survivor that she is, she ended up surviving him by more than 37 years. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Uh, but once again, a, a forgotten first. And whether or not you would want to consider her the first female president, she's certainly one of the forgotten first ladies. Thank you for joining us. And until next time, I'm Phil Horander. And I'm Phil Schaff. Another chapter has been added to the history textbooks.